Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes as we all shelter in place. This season on SageCast, we're talking to Pomona faculty and alumni about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. Today, we're delighted to talk to tech entrepreneur Shadia Sigala, class of 2006, who's involved with two growing venture-backed tech startups. She's the CEO and co-founder of Kinside and the former co-founder of HoneyBook. Welcome, Shadia. Welcome to, to SageCast. Thank you for having me. It's good to have you with us. Um, especially in these challenging times, uh, thanks for taking the time. How are, how are you managing during this uh, public health crisis? Whew. Gosh, I think that's, I mean, that's such a loaded question for any person right now, right? And I, one of the things that I'm observing about this time is that this is the great equalizer, um, and no matter what your station in life is, we're all really grounded um, and really anchored in our humanity right now. Um, honestly, um, my emotions and an and outlook for the future change on an hour-to-hour basis. Sometimes I'm feeling like we're this is great and we're going to be totally fine, and other times I feel a little more nervous. But I'll tell you what is... Um, What's really interesting about my situation is that I'm a mom of two kids. And in fact, I'm a single mom of two kids. And um, my my current startup, which I know we'll, we'll go into my current business venture, is around solving the very real needs of working parents in childcare. And right now, I am literally living my very own problem, right? That I'm trying to solve in my business, as is every person in the state and around many states and, and more and more around the country and more and more around the world. It's humbling, if, isn't it? It is so humbling. It is, it is such a universal need. Childcare is essential, whether you're the executive of a company or, you know, a frontline worker. We are all thinking wow, our infrastructure and our social and political and economic infrastructure is woefully lacking when it comes to childcare. And not only lacking, but um, just so essential. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, Shadia, let's, um, let's take you back in the Wayback Machine for a second and uh, uh, talk, to, talk to us a little bit about, about your time at Pomona. How did you find your way to Pomona College? My path to Pomona was certainly non-traditional. So when I arrived to Pomona, I know you, you can only imagine this was such a culture shock for me. I mean, I had grown up in a very Mexican-American um, immigrant community, right, uh, right down the street, blue-collar um, work. And while I was, you know, in the honors classes in my high school, upon coming to Pomona College, I realized and really struggled with having with actually being very under-resourced and under-prepared for the academic rigor that was ahead of me. I never don't take the opportunity to credit one of my mentors at Pomona College, which is a professor, a tenured professor, April Mayes, who in my, she teaches at Pomona currently. And in my very first semester, she said, you're not doing good enough. You are not as good as your peers. 
not you or not, but your work is not as good as your peers. And, you know, she, she, she had a similar story. She said she was a first generation. Um, actually she went to Pomona college when she was, um, when she went to college and then came back to teach. And she said, look, I have to give it to you straight. Uh, and I'm doing this as a favor to you because I see myself in you and you're going to have to work double as hard to come up to par academically. And I cried. I mean, I was like grateful and also embarrassed. I called my mom and I cried and I just, and probably every week, once a week for my first semester, I called, I would call my mom crying saying, I can't do this. This is really hard, but I doubled down. And if there's anything that I love is a good challenge. And, you know, I ended up graduating with an incredible GPA. So, um, did you uh, know what you wanted to do professionally when you arrived at Pomona, or did that come while you were there? Absolutely or did it, or not. after? <laughs> I mean, who knows what they want to do when they're 18? Uh, so I actually, but I'll tell you what, I didn't know what I wanted to do professionally, but I found a passion. I found my true passion for public service and change making and movement making. So while I was on campus, I became really involved with sort of student uh, on campus groups. I helped to create, in fact, one of these such groups called um, SOCA, the Student of Color Alliance. And today we have the SOCA Lounge. I hear it still exists mm -hmm. uh, on sure campus. Does. And it was a group of us. We made that happen. We, you know, we went and pitched to the administration why we needed a, you know, a different space. And we pitched them a budget and we pitched them an idea. And that, um, and that was just one of many instances in which I actually became involved in a very sort of public leadership kind of way. Um, I found my inner activist. I found my inner voice, my inner um, love for galvanizing and leading groups to achieve a common purpose all on campus, right? Um, I, uh, you know, I started a, you know, in my sophomore year, I started a, a charity group where we raised uh, funds to send back to uh, poor people on the other side of, of the border. And then by my senior year, um, I was working with a student uh, on this actual um, nonprofit, a student-led nonprofit, doing social services for the community, uh, for poor members at, in the Pomona um, community for homeless women and their children. And so for me, I thought, you know what? I thought, I, I think I might be really good at um, making a difference. And so I literally Googled masters in make the world a better place. I didn't know what it was called. Mind you, never did I think yeah. I'm a, I like business. I want to make money. I'm an entrepreneur. Those words could not be further from my lexicon. Um, and in fact, I just had some preconceived notions that like business is boring. Um, and I want to do more interesting things with my life and I want to make a big impact. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when we get to the part of the story where I tell you about how I founded two private businesses, um, I'll tell you how that all connected. But, you know, certainly I had a passion for for making change happen. And so when I literally Googled how to make masters and how to make the world a better place, I discovered it's called a master's in public policy. And so I followed that passion. I followed that intuition. And here's where I'm going to do like a humble brag, but also really encourage the students and their youth to do this all, 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 all day long, right? For your entire life, but certainly when you're young and you and you're 
naivete uh, gives you, or like you can blame it a little bit on your naivete, but it's really just to be gutsy and be bold and be confident. And I told myself, great, I want to get a master's in public policy right out of college, but only if I can go to a top three program. And that's that. And if I don't get in, who cares? I'll get a job like the rest of my, my, my peers. Um, but that's what I'm going for. And so I applied to only the top three programs and I got in and I ended up going to Harvard, so Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. And now you can imagine for me, like again, having come from, you know, we talked about Rialto High School, where, you know, like most good students go to like a UC, like a, like a really great UC school, um, going to an elite institution, an elite American institution was just, first of all, like hugely life-changing, Going to Pomona for me changed my life. That truly changed the trajectory of my life. I was exposed to what's possible at the 0.1%. And then going to Harvard, forget it. I was just like, and then that, you know, that just opened up. I just added a level of pedigree and polish um, uh, in my budding career that I could not have imagined. Mm-hmm. And uh, and from there, I wanted to work. Uh, I went to work for the private sector, and I've been working. I suppose you could say in the private sector for a minute now, but always, but I found a way to find purpose and meaning and world changing ideas, even if they're small, all through the private sector and through business. So how did you uh, move from um, public policy to uh, entrepreneurship? How, how did you make that shift? Or is it a shift? Mm-hmm. It was a huge shift and it was a mental shift. So when I graduated Harvard, I went to work for a Fortune 100 corporation, Aetna Health Insurance. (laughs) And I went to work, so you might be like, isn't that the opposite of you care about the world? (laughs) No, I I went to work. I I went to work for the Office of Public Policy. So the bridge for me was how can I work from within the private sector in my field and in a way that actually makes sense of you know how how do you build a better system humans to live in and healthcare obviously in this country is paramount to making a better world for all the humans um, in the country. Um, for all the citizens. So I worked in healthcare reform. So I found that, so this was just like, it was a slice, right? It was a little tiny bit of saying, of being like, oh, okay. There, there is a role even in the private sector, which is a very, very generic term, but there is a role in the private sector to think about the good that we do. And, but then I, I, I just, you know, within, I only worked there for two years. I got incredible experience. I learned the corporate ropes. I learned all about politics, right? Employee politics and hierarchy and organizational um, structuring. I mean, I learned incredible, just, it was just an incredible boot camp for me. Um, but it was the wrong environment. It was a corporate environment. So I'm not even saying because I thought, I mean, I think the company was a lovely company to work for. Um, I had really great opportunities. I started to move up like the chain, even in my juniorness, I was starting, I was being groomed by C-level executives in the, in, in, in the company. And I had to make a really hard decision 
to basically, in my mind, I was like, do I throw away, quote unquote, throw away this incredible position I'm in? I'm literally being groomed by C-level executives at a Fortune 100 company for a really lovely 30-year career here. <laughs> and I was like, I can't even think about the next 30 days because the environment for me as an, as an inner entrepreneur was so stifling. It was so slow moving. So I made the decision to quit and become self-employed. And so for me, making the bridge into, you know, business wasn't like, now I'm going to go build my own business empire. It was, can I be self-reliant? Can I, on my own talents and skills that I have right now, make enough money to make a living? Right? So that was my first mental breakthrough, which is let me just make a living on my own two feet in my own business, my own venture in myself, whatever that is. And I didn't know what it was going to be. And so one might, one might call it a quarter life crisis, <laughs> which is a really <laughs> hilarious and lovely time to have a crisis so early on. Um, but I'm so glad that I, I mean, I truly made a bet. I made a big bet. I quit my really well-paying job um, that, you know, that was a direct outcome of this super prestigious academic career that I had built to that point to become quote unquote self-employed. What did your parents think at that moment, by the way? <laughs> you know, my mom, again, I, I'm already like beating, I'm already winning at life. Uh, my mom's always been incredibly proud. Like, and like the fact that I, um, have, you know, had achieved so much in the traditional achievement, um, sense she was she's proud of me no matter what she was a little confused but if anything my mom always trusts my intuition and she trusts that I know pretty much exactly what I'm doing and I do like in my gut like I trust my gut and I and I and, and I and I I'm pretty focused when I have a goal um and but that, that's that's all I knew my goal was I'm going to become self-reliant self-sufficient and start in my own business and I didn't know what that was and I didn't need any more than that um, yeah. So, so, hmm. so what um, was next after? So, so you, what was you, next is, so, yeah. So I, so I quit my job and I moved from Hartford, Connecticut, insurance capital of the world to Los Angeles to be a personal chef. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so I oh, thought, that's well, a, well, that's the obvious move. Right. <laughs> Well, I thought, I thought, geez, what skills do I have as a 25-year-old um, that are, you know, outside of my my traditional career professional experience? And I thought, well, <laughs> I'm an incredible cook. I'm an incredible cook. And I got my first shot for myself at basically developing a product, myself and my cooking skills, pitching it, selling it, and then and then operating against it. And you know what? It paid my rent wow. <laughs> almost immediately upon two months of landing in LA. I had my first gig. I mean, I got out there. That's like, it's like tip number two students. Um, you know who it was from my first gig, a Pomona alum, like a lot, like from like an older one <laughs> from the sixties or seventies. But like I went on LinkedIn and I looked up every single Pomona college alum on, and I uh, was like in LA and I reached out to most of them or whoever I, you know, had access to. Mm -hmm. 
and they took pity on me and they gave me the first gig. And I love it, by the way. I'm not ashamed of that. I'm just like, they knew, like, man, they, they saw me and they saw what I was doing. Um, and, and they gave me a chance, which then gave me, uh, once you get your first gig, now you can use that as leverage. Oh, well, I already worked for such and such, right? And actually, the first gig was me catering a birthday party for 20 of their closest friends, a very fancy part of, it, uh, of Santa Monica. And so one of those friends said, oh, why don't you come cater to me? And one of them said, well, why don't you come and cook in my house? And that's how I got started. And that is entrepreneurship, people. It is not, it does not have to be sophisticated. Entrepreneurship is like a hustle and a frame of mind and you needing to get that next dollar. Right. Mm-hmm. So how long was the, the food business in, so my stint, in business? Yeah. So my stint, my, my spot. So then, so I was like, this is cool. I lasted one year, but here's what I learned in the one year. I was like, this is, this feels so liberating. I'm not making a ton. I'm literally just breaking even on my monthly expenses. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm living in a tiny studio and I was like, you know what? I will take this any day over over a um, over a uh, stable salary because I know that I can grow it because now I know that I ha- that the destiny is in my own hands. First of all, I didn't go homeless, I didn't die, nothing terrible happened. I just made less money, but I'm controlling my money, and so that for me was like a it was I don't know if we call it a drug, but it was an incredibly liberating sentiment. Now it wasn't that easy, right? That's the thing. It wasn't easy. Um, mm-hmm. And within one year, or actually even less than one year, about this in the, in the, the six month mark, I said to myself, you know, like when I go, like when I go in on something, I want to be the very best at that thing. And so right now, for me, it's like, great. Do I grow this business into you know one of the top catering outfits in LA? Because like that's how I think, right? I'm like, and the next step is you become one of the top <laughs> the Harvard of food. <laughs> the Harvard of food. Yes. Um, and if and by and like uh, I obviously I know that it then I'll have case it'll take me three to five years to build it up to that point. But if I, like I can already envision what the end goal is, and that did not feel like an appealing um, business for me. It didn't feel like it was intellectually uh, stimulating enough, and so I and it wasn't scalable enough. It wasn't having the impact and reach that I would want to unfurl my talents into. So I decided to um, to stop doing that. And I moved to, and I, by the way, it was just coincided with me moving. I moved to San Francisco. And that's where I, that's where it all clicked in. I was like, oh my God. I was meant to be in San Francisco. This is the land of plenty, the land of entrepreneurism, the land of startups, um, the land of ultimate innovation with maximum impact. You know, this is where Facebook and Google, I mean, you can only imagine me. We all know what Silicon Valley is today. Um, I was there as some of the biggest brands today, like Airbnb and Uber um, and Facebook were really starting to gain their attraction and so I was totally inspired and I said to myself well when in Rome you do as the Romans do so when in San Francisco you you co-found a tech startup <laughs> so how do you go about developing the sort of base of knowledge and and 
um, I'm, you know, it's not experience. Experience comes with doing it, I guess. But how do you prepare to, to do your own startup? I, I think to a lot of people, it's just a very daunting uh, proposition. It is, and it did not happen overnight. And there was there was so much trial and fail, uh, trialer. What is the expression? Trial and error. Trial and error. Um, so you know, it's very easy to tell my story in a way that glosses over all of the <laughs> that like the dips into the valleys, and then so I just look like fantastic, you know, of like the, the chart is up and to the right, and in like startup land, we always say up and to the right, just show investors up and to the right, it's growing, and the arc of my life and my career is certainly up and to the right, but man. There are some months of darkness. Well, and those make the story much more interesting. And a couple of years, honestly. So, okay, let me tell you the real truth. Between the catering and co-founding HoneyBook was about two years. So, like, I like I skipped. Some, see how easy it was mm-hmm. for me to skip the personal part. Like, I moved, I got engaged. I moved to Charlotte, North Carolina. Charlotte was a wash. It was for one year. Then I got really depressed. I couldn't. Like, oh, I was like, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> right. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. And. And it got to the point where I really was, oh gosh, every, yes, every, every 20 something year old needs to hear this. Who hears this? I was weighing, do I continue down this? Like now it feels like fun employment and less like an intentional break for my career to start something new because I just cannot click into something new. Like when I moved to Charlotte, North Carolina and left the catering business behind. Um, and should I just say shot, good try, just go back to public policy, you know, get it like, get a prestigious job at a prestigious think tank, make money, build a great career. You still love that work, right? Like I still loved public policy and I was weighing that and I would go through, you know, weeks where I'd be like, yeah, forget the whole entrepreneurship thing. And I would just be sending resumes and taking and taking interviews with policy think tanks in DC. And mostly I was desperate. I was desperate to, first of all, have money because who doesn't, like who wants to not have money? But I was desperate to be doing something and to be fulfilling my sense of purpose and using my talents. I was also desperate to not lose time in my career. And I was so close to getting a job in a DC policy think tank, so close. And then I didn't. And it was devastating mm. for like a week, right? And that was a signal to me. It was like, well, that wasn't devastating for too long. I was kind of relieved. Mm. Then when I moved to San Francisco, I said, okay, let's let's try again. Let's let's try to find. So I immediately moved to San Francisco. I was like, and then I was desperate. I was just like, I, I, Shadia, you need to get your shit together. You know, get a job and then try again later for entrepreneurship. And. I applied again. And here's the thing. I was getting all the interviews, right? Like, it's not hard. That was, it's not hard. I always tell everyone, the worst thing that could happen is you just go and get a job. And um, I was, uh, I was a front, I was a top runner for this incredible job at Teach for America at the leadership level. Um, And I didn't get it. And this time, so by the way, this is like four months into San Francisco. This is like one year and a half out of my catering employment. So this time when I didn't get it, I was devastated for all of 10 minutes. <laughs> and that's how I knew. I just was like, so then I said, no, Sean, 
you get your shit together and stop pretending and stop trying to get a job. Go do what you're meant to be doing. And my gut was so strong that I had to do a tech startup. So, here, so there you go. It was not eat, like, okay. And then how did I do it? Was a whole nother, was a whole nother thing. <laughs> well, and how do you, I mean, how, how did you come up with the idea behind yeah. it? I mean, it's a, the idea is the first thing, right? Sort of. <laughs> sort of because you have you could you have 10 ideas you have 100 ideas and yeah. they always say every like ideas are cheap execution is everything <laughs> i had 10 amazing ideas but did i do mm. any of them no so who cares nobody wants to hear about it right. oh i thought of that like the person says oh i thought about airbnb like who cares why are you telling anyone <laughs> you didn't <laughs> do nothing. it you did okay <laughs> so did i um yeah. So, so I'll tell you what, for me, it was a process. And by the way, I have to, I have to like acknowledge how kind of silly it sounds to say like, I just want to do a tech startup because a tech startup means nothing. And it means a hundred different things. Yeah. Like, what does that mean? And that is also very sort of naive, right? Um, but thank God for my naivete because I was like, well, I don't know, but I'm going to go figure out what a tech startup is. It looks fun. It looks cool from the outside. I think, I, I think I'm the right stuff because I'm super entrepreneurial. I'm a hustler and I make shit happen. So then I said, okay. So then I, of course I started to, to take ideas, but also it wasn't just about the idea. It was about going out and meeting people. So I said, all right, first, let me know what, like when I say tech startup, what does that mean? By the way, technology is hardware. It's software, it's internet, it's um, consumer, it's enterprise. It's like all the different things that I had no clue about. So I went out and I, again, back to LinkedIn, I reached out to every Pomona or Claremont College alum that lived in San Francisco and worked at a tech company. And I reached out to every Harvard person that worked at a tech company. And, and I said, hey, I'm really interested in learning about your job. Or, hey, I'm thinking about, I love the tech startup world. I want to learn about what business development is. Hey, I want to learn about what product management is. And what is consumer tech? Because they're like, I'm in a consumer company. And I'd be like, what is that? Uh, which were like very embarrassing questions to ask. But you know what? You let, who cares? I felt like like you create these safe, these safe spaces. People love, people love to give their advice. People love to be important mm -hmm. enough to give advice. So they, uh, so I asked all the all the, the silly questions, and then as I got more and more confident, and and I started then to develop a stronger idea, which was I had just gone through my own. I planned a wedding, and I was paying all of my vendors, wedding vendors, with checks and cash. And I was like, "Can you please just take PayPal?" And they were like, "Does not compute." And I was like, "This is weird." And then they, and then I was like, "Well, can I DocuSign you our contract?" And they were like, "No, I'll mail you the contract and mail it back." And I'm like, "Where do you buy stamps?" <laughs> Like, this is already, like, 2012. There's, like, the internet already exists. This is not, like, the 90s. It's just, like, I don't even know how to mail a thing anymore. How do you write a check? Um, so that was the impetus for me to start to think, oh, okay. So that was the impetus for how I started to ID what HoneyBook might look like. And at the same time, because I was meeting so many uh, people and founders – as I started to share, I think there's this, I think there's, there's something to work with here. And my intention is to be at the founding level of a, a tech startup. They said, ah, and they started to connect me with friends and friends of friends. Well, they're just doing something. They might be doing something interesting. Oh, this one knows about weddings. Oh, this one knows about software. And I would, and I, and that path 
I think within, within three to four months of really, really, really intentional um, building out that network and building out my, my foundation, I, I met my co-founders. Wow. I met the, my, my three co-founders who, you know, became my co-founders of HoneyBook. Wow. And they were working on something similar, yeah. right? And if I and if I hadn't been telling people, you know, I think that this <laughs> is this space with all these wedding vendors could be innovated. Blah, blah, blah. If I hadn't said that and, and, and stated my intention, I would like to be at the founding level, whatever. And I actually think that this is a space that I'd like to do something in by myself or with someone else. They would never said, you know, I actually think I actually know these these three Israelis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I met and I met them and. It was instant chemistry, and we band, we we joined forces, and that was the beginning of HoneyBook. And today, HoneyBook has raised over eighty million dollars in venture capital. It powers over fifty thousand small business owners, um, and it is a growth company. Mm-hmm. As we were planning our wedding in twenty seventeen, God bless HoneyBook. So, <laughs> so yeah. You used it. Oh my gosh! Do you see every time? And it's, it's funny because I, I, I oh before when we were doing the research for this, I was like, oh, she co-founded Honeybug. God bless her. So, <laughs> oh my god! Okay, you literally, I'm having a fangirl moment. I don't think there will ever be a, a moment where I don't meet when, like, I meet someone in the wild. Call it a real person whom really? I touched. Oh, no. Like I touched you. Like you use my thing. And, like, and I, I'll say that our That's we had vendors so who didn't work together, and they all used HoneyBook. Mm-hmm. So that's the the power of HoneyBook. I absolutely no. It is the power of HoneyBook, and you know I would say HoneyBook isn't. It's like HoneyBook is a very long term company, but it is. So it's six years, six and a half years in. Um, this is like the first act. Because the second act of HoneyBook is what you just said. All these vendors who don't necessarily work with each other, but they're all using it. The next act of HoneyBook is now mm. it's everyone's connected. It's a huge network. So, so thank you. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. Of thank you for sharing. And, and that. related to that, what was um, one of your proudest moments at HoneyBook? I mean, you're asking me to like choose yes. my favorite baby <laughs> or like what? <laughs> um, I wouldn't say it's a moment. It's maybe it's a it's a doing. Mm-hmm. It's a creation. Um, it's what it all adds up to. Um, Honeybook is known is pretty much famous for its incredible employee culture. And regardless of what you build or what the product is, there's people who are working in your organization, people who choose to work for you. And in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley, where everyone, every company's really cool and every company's crushing it, killing it, crushing it, you could really, people have their pick of litter. And for us, having developed truly a culture that is incredibly compassionate incredibly people focused has made this a very sustainable company and folks who work for Honeywork work there for a long time and they say this is the best company I've ever worked for. How big is Honeybook now? And that Honeybook is about 100 employees. So, um, you know, speaking about that, you've, you've also authored studies um, about 
gender pay gap, sexual harassment in the workplace or in the freelance economy. Um, what do you feel? I mean, mm-hmm. how did you get involved in that? And why do you feel so passionate about it? So you just mentioned my like my activist and public policy um, resurgence inside of HoneyBook, right? So that there is a perfect um, so uh, there is a perfect example of how me doing this pri- this private sector endeavor, this business endeavor, can fulfill both aspects that are very compelling to me on my day to day and like feeling like I work with a purpose in the long run. One is it's fun, exciting, challenging. There's like, there's the functional aspect of like building a business is incredibly challenging and, and, and becoming and growing as a leader and an executive and managing so many people and is incredibly challenging. And then uh, in fulfilling, that's fulfilling. So the, the challenge, but the other part that's fulfilling for me is knowing that we are making change and we're making systematic change. I always want to be working on something that I feel is actually making a change systematically. And for us, for me, the the study that you just mentioned, we realized that we had this incredibly powerful platform that is HoneyBook that had been for years collecting a lot of data around the base, I don't know if you call it, around the the pay and wages of all these freelancers Mm -hmm. because HoneyBook is at the core payment processor. HoneyBook sees every, every dollar that a photographer or a web developer or creative freelancer is making. We see every dollar we process it. And so we said, how can we use all this data that we've amassed for good? And so we thought, hey, there's this big conversation around the gender pay gap in the corporate and organized workplace. Let's see if that same trend bears in the freelance space or in the small business space where there's a lot less data. It's really hard to get that data, right? For folks running their own small business. And so we were able to do that and actually, so when we actually harnessed the power of our data, we were able to discover that the gender pay gap is in fact deeper in the freelance space or in the space where women and men run their own business. Yeah, wow. Which was which is incredibly alarming because you might think, hey, but you get to set your own rates, you run your own business. But without, we we actually found that that without or the hypothesis is that at least like the corporate space with like the the more organized professional space has some kind of rails, some kind of compensation mm-hmm. rails, where the gender pay gap is not as deep as when people have to choose their own price. Um, we also found that that the that the mother that there's a there. We didn't find we a, a strong link. There's a strong linkage to women as mothers and caretakers mm-hmm. and paying a motherhood penalty. Yeah. Which is that they make less money because people perceive them to be less available or less mm-hmm. committed. When in fact, the research, the brain research um, and, the, and the profit research indicates the mm-hmm. opposite. When, when organizations work with a diverse cast of characters, including women, mothers, people of color, that organization, that company has a higher um, profit margin. Shadia. Yeah. Oh yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so so that was yeah. the catapult. Yeah, no, so I was that 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 catapult to me honestly, that that for me was a pivotal moment. You know, you might say like, okay, so why I don't know, I'm, let me ask the question for you. Why did you then go to co-found Kinsack when you were involved in this incredibly mm-hmm. fast-growing, mm-hmm. exciting uh, That company? was our next question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
And, and, and the reason is it wasn't a push out. It was a pull. I was being pulled because I went, I, first of all, I, that was for me the pivotal moment where I was like, I got in touch with this, this um, surge of energy. Where I was like, I like need to create something new, but more specifically, I became a mother and becoming, going from being a non-parent to a parent I have to say it's the most violent transition <laughs> that any human being can have in their identity and in their day to day. I've never heard it called violent, but I, I've it heard it called lots of other violent. things. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it's this violent transition yeah. from not a parent to holy crap I am. Yeah. Responsible in charge of this little human being that I cannot give back. And it happens overnight, right? I mean, it happens <laughs> in a, in a, in a, from one an minute eye to the next. Yes. 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 Suddenly you are responsible for this other life. It's, yes. it's like you, you look at the people around you and you say, they're really going to let me take this child home? They don't know how ignorant I am. Oh my gosh. <laughs> exactly. And you know what? I, I always uh, add, I always share that I also had postpartum depression. And I feel very responsible in sharing that because no one talked to me about it. So I, that's the, maybe that's the violent thing. I was like, what is yeah. this? <laughs> I was like, what? Like literally so shocked. It was so shocking. It was so surprising. Mm -hmm. I was immediately in a different headspace. I was not doing well emotionally with this new identity, literally yeah. the same day as I gave birth. And it can happen very, very quickly. It can happen over time. But um, we just don't have that in the mainstream conversation. We all talk yeah. about parenthood as it's like, oh, you're a mother. It's your greatest joy. End of story. <laughs> right. um, when in fact, the, and by the way, it is. It is, but it's much it more complicated. It is both the greatest joy. And challenging. And the so greatest burden. Yeah. Um, and talking about, and that conversation needs to be more nuanced, more complex. So that's my contribution to that. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, so, so, so I became a mother not only once, but then I had a second baby during my time at HoneyBook. And having that perspective, I had to come back to the company as a founder um, and say, hey, we need to look at our paid family leave policies. We need to look at the way that our organization is supportive of uh, parents, whether they're mothers, fathers. By the way, we already had parents in the organization who just had babies, who had kids already. But we had never um, had a pregnancy, uh, like an employee pregnant, and go through that. And... Talk about talk about having a, um, empathy, uh, like an executive champion, right? To build, to have that empathy, to care about a problem in your company. Because before then, I didn't think that much about what the parents' day to day experiences were like. Um, and then when I had my baby, I was like, "Well, that's hard." Literally, right? The moment. So one is getting bringing the baby home. You know, we 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 had a we had a really great four month, uh, four to six month. Uh, leave policy but then the moment when you have to come back you literally have to drop your baby in someone's arms yeah who's that person well and, and where you know, in the united states of course we're one of the few countries where extended families usually are thousands of miles away yeah exactly we did not absolutely we didn't have an extended family system in the in san francisco where we were living at the time um, and so we have to rely, we have to outsource care. We have to outsource right. the village. And so, so, so for me, for, I mean, I, my, my firsthand experience from going back into, like I said, this award-winning people culture, 
agriculture company. We did our very, very best to be as supportive as possible. By the way, we had a great, um, uh, uh, we had great systems like, like we, like we've been, like we are well ahead of the curve in terms of video conferencing, uh, having flexible um, and unlimited paid time off, having really great paid leave policies, even supporting parents in the in their maternity and paternity time in the early days by giving them extra um, perks during that time. And then I said, great, I checked all the, all, all, all the, I checked everything. Now I just need to handle childcare because I know that really childcare for all of my employees, for me and my employees is the single most stressful component of being a working parent at HoneyBook, childcare. Logistically, financially, emotionally, childcare is the single most difficult issue for a person that has a family and works. Yeah. It's just, you can't And we're seeing that in, in spades today with the coronavirus. Oh, um, I mean, we're all yeah. living it. I don't yeah. know how old your kids are. Well, mine are all grown. My, I only had one. Mine is, yeah. but I have a, I have a grandson who's four uh -oh. that I get to see through the yeah. window basically now. Oh, yeah. And, you know, through the, through the mm -hmm. internet. Mm -hmm. Mine are one. So I'm, I'm in that. Do you have two? I have twin boys. Oh my gosh! God bless your heart. <laughs> so that's why I'm, I keep nodding and nodding yeah, and nodding. No, no, I could tell. I could tell. It was like she's a mom. He's a dad. I got it. <laughs> they get it. They see yeah. me. No. So look. So so um, so when I went out to market, basically to say, okay, I'm going to go purchase a, a benefit, an employee benefit that helps that like is meaningful in helping my parents and their childcare um, burden. I could not find one hmm. and yeah. that was for me the moment that was the aha moment and I thought I have to work on this problem like this is mm -hmm. a policy problem this is a societal problem this is an economic problem it's a business problem employers we know that nearly one in every two women will leave your will leave their jobs within the first two years of having a new baby as an employer, like me, like I hire and I spend a lot of money recruiting people and training them and perking them up to, for me to think about losing a single person is incredibly painful, right? As an employer. Mm -hmm. So I was like, this is, there's a real need here. So that's, was the impetus for launching Kinside. I said, we have to solve this problem. And mind you, I didn't have a solution. I didn't know what, that's the thing. When you are, they, who said, someone said, um, fall in love with the problem, not the solution. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So here's the problem. Here's the problem. And going through the entrepreneurial journey is from idea to actual product out to market, even like a, like a rinky dink minimum viable product takes a lot of evolution. Yeah. For me, that evolution was fairly short because I moved really, really quickly generally <laughs> as a person, but also, but also because, and you know, I, I actually would go back. Patricia, to your to your old uh, other question, which is like, what's your the proudest thing? I would uh, from HoneyBook, I would say I'm um, not proud, but I'm incredibly grateful that I had this first experience scaling up a company very rapidly, so that I could do that again at Kinside in double speed. And so, in the last two years, we've only been around not even two years. You know, we've already raised over well, we've we've raised under five million dollars in venture capital. Wow. Um, and 
But like, why did we raise money? It's not just like we raised money. It's because we've had incredible results, incredible traction. And we work with thousands of employers today. So this idea that there was something missing, proven. There's so a market how does Kinside work? Somebody doesn't know about Kinside. How does Kinside Great work? Great question. So Kinside is, Kinside is the place where parents come to access high quality, vetted, licensed childcare. Now, this is not just any parent. This exists only as an employee benefit. So, so if you, so we partner with companies or employers who say, "Hey, I really want to like I'm helping. I, I'm choosing to invest in my employees in our my parent employees. They purchase Kinside, and in turn, those employees have access to a huge um, database and network of daycare and preschool providers that we Kinside have negotiated pre-negotiated rates, tuitions, discounts, and reserved availabilities on their behalf, right? Mm. So this is not, so, so think about it as like the, 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 the experience, the user experience is like the Airbnb for childcare, a very mm-hmm. simple way. Yeah, I need it here. It needs to be home-based. I want it in this budget. And it, that's not it. <laughs> that's not everything. You can, you can book a tour and roll on Kinside and get access, as I said, to thousands of exclusive tuition rates that we've negotiated on your behalf, as well as reserved spots that we've negotiated on your behalf. And the availability. So it's a membership. It's also also so huge. It's the availability. It doesn't help you if you have if, if you have 10, 10 daycares near your area and you have no clue who's available, who'll take your kid, who's a four month old, who has spot for two twins. It's all, it almost seems like even if you tour daycares when you're pregnant, there's still no chance or guarantee. That's exactly right. So um, we liken it to, you know, think about a time before open table mm-hmm. and you had to call, you had to look at the yellow pages and then call every restaurant and t- call 10 restaurants to find who has a reservation available and then you, and then, then you sign up for it. So we essentially have basically develop the grid that identifies all of the the home-based and center-based daycares in America. Mm -hmm. Then we tap into them with software and find out where are the availabilities, what is the cost and create a lot of, uh, we create all the information transparency so that you as a consumer, as a parent, you come in and you get exactly what you need. If you need care today or three months from now, we know exactly when that care is available. Shadia, you You've talked several times about your networking with um, Pomona grads, you know, in, in various places, and how they helped you um, get going in your business uh, work. The I happen to know you also have stayed pretty close to some of your old friends at Pomona. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that network and how important that has been for you? You know, I developed the closest relationships of my life at Pomona. I think a lot of people do in their college, right? In their college years. But um, my, my, my group of friends from Pomona. So I, I, I can, I think I have, I know a lot, I have a lot of friends and then I have a core group of friends. Uh, and my core group of friends are uh, so they're like, we're such an eclectic mix. In fact, when we were in college, we didn't even like hang out all the time together. We all had like some were in sports. And so they had their sports friends. And, you know, it's like, who do you like, who do you have, who do you have lunch with at Prairie or whatever? It's like, we didn't even have lunch together. We were not even in the same sort of day-to-day groups, but our friendships 
were formed over um, study abroad experiences and internship experiences and traveling the world together experiences. Um, and to this day, we have a WhatsApp group. There's, there's, uh, there's five of us. It's like, by the way, this is kind of sad, but it's like make a lot of friends in college because it's the last time you can make friends because it's really hard to make friends afterward. <laughs> there are five of us and we talk on WhatsApp all day long. And then I would say that there's maybe a, another group of like 10 outside of those who I keep like very, very close relationships with as well. So on that note, um, we're going to have to wrap this up. We've been talking with uh, Shadia Sigala, class of 06, co-founder of Kinside. Thanks, Shadia. It's my, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Shadia. That was great. And to all who stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Stay safe and until next time.